Hey everyone, I'm Ashley Asti and welcome to I'm Curious Podcast. Today we're talking about libraries, but in a way you've probably never imagined them before. To me, libraries have always been magical spaces where whole new worlds exist within the pages of books, where you can stumble on anything, where anyone can find space to learn or find safety or community, where everyone belongs. But as Adam Eckelman, the executive director of the U.S. Office of Libraries Without Borders, shows us in this episode, libraries aren't only magical, they are fundamental to equality and justice. As of this recording, the U.S. and the globe has been facing a pandemic for nearly a year. So Adam and I dive into not only literacy and access to information through books, but digital literacy and the way in this age of virtual school and Zoom meetings and Zoom court and telehealth appointments, digital literacy and access to a computer and internet are not only luxuries, they're necessities. So let's jump in. Adam, I am so grateful to have you here. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Before we get into the work that you're doing now, I actually want to rewind a little bit, sort of set the scene. Uh, I know you, you're, of course, very involved with Libraries Without Borders now, so I want to know, as a kid, a little bit about your childhood. Were you the type of kid who was always reading, who liked to visit the library? What was your childhood like? That's a great question. Um, so I always think about, you know, I like to say that libraries, in particular public libraries, are community anchors. Um, and when you put books and computers and information generally into a space and you equip that space with trained librarians and staff, that there's kind of a, a nuclear reaction and that something emerges that is not, not just the sum of its parts, but also um, something else entirely. And for me, I think that the public library was, was definitely that kind of institution growing up where you know, yes, I would go um, often on the weekends and check out books. Uh, I actually <laughs> would also uh, secretly rent out CDs from <laughs> the public library, particularly rap and hip hop CDs, <laughs> uh, because my mom had no idea that, you know, libraries not only rent out books, but they also have CDs. Uh, and so I would be able to secretly get hip hop music that my mom would never have approved of. Um, but, you know, I was not only able to get resources like books and CDs, but I was also able to create a safe space and a community that was outside of my own home. Um, I grew up in a pretty small town in Massachusetts. Uh, and actually, as a kid, both my parents died when I was when I was pretty young and the librarians were really just an incredible part of my support community. Um, they knew about my life, they knew about my parents, they knew about my secret love of hip hop music that I would never have wanted to tell my mom about. Um, and they were kind of able to, in the same way that a teacher or a school counselor or a neighbor kind of follows you along, librarians for me and the public library in general was really this, this safe space, this community, um, that I was able to wrap myself around in. And I think the mission of a library, which is the same mission that Libraries Without Borders shares, a mission to promote access to information, has been 
for me, just a, a life passion. And as I've gotten older, I've learned so much more about it. As a kid, I was a lover of books. I read and I read and I read in part because I knew my father loved books. And so it was something that really reminded me of him. Um, but as an adult, I've learned so much more about what access to information means. It is, in my opinion, the really the framework for democracy. Um, information and particularly reliable information is what enables, and it's very relevant today, it's what enables us to make informed decisions about our elected officials. It's what enables us to access health information or to book an appointment with a doctor. It's what enables us to file our taxes. Um, and it's what enables us to learn the English language and to participate in our communities, to go to school. Information is so critical to it. And um, as I'll probably talk about a little bit later, part of that is also the digital divide. Um, you know, information is not just books, but it's also the internet. I'm moved by the way the library and, and the people and the librarians who work there became the safe space for you and, and nourished you. I, it's the reasons I call the library sometimes magical. But I also, what you're saying here about um, the connection to information and democracy and making an informed decision makes me think that magical is not enough of a word. It's fundamental too, um, beyond that. You, you're, you're, what's so fascinating about you is you've done all this uh, justice work and seem to be at the heart of so many justice issues and yet you're young. Um, before joining Libraries with, Without Borders, I know you worked with asylum seekers and refugees. You're involved in the Baltimore community now. What first drew you to this kind of work promoting equity and justice? It was actually my work with new immigrants. Um, so I, as a student in college, I really became engaged and involved in access to justice, that is access to you know, legal rights, um, for new immigrants and in particular asylum seekers. I actually ended up taking a leave of absence when I was a student to work in South Texas on the US-Mexican border um, in various detention facilities uh, where asylum seeking women and children from Central America were detained. Um, and one of my jobs was to get people out of prison, more or less, <laughs> in a legal way. Um, so. I, <laughs> I spend hours coaching asylum seekers on how to understand the basic tenets of asylum law and how to use that law to get out of jail. Um, now, what was so interesting for me in that experience was that I was not a lawyer. I was an undergrad. Um, and yet I was working in a space where and this was in 2016, so before Trump was elected, um, there wasn't that much scrutiny and awareness of what was happening on the U.S.-Mexican border. You know, there had been some coverage about unaccompanied minors. There was a knowledge and there was, you know, a growing awareness about asylum seekers from Central America, but it was a very different climate. Um, Obama was president. People were not talking about kids in cages, even though I think it's important to point out Obama um, did actually reinstitute the detention of asylum-seeking women and children, um, which was a policy that, of course, Trump dramatically exacerbated. But the the detention facility certainly existed. Now I say all of this because 
I was working in a space where I was essentially one of two full-time staff members. I was actually the only person who was working in this detention facility five days a week. There were multiple days where I was the only person in um, the detention center for you know roughly four or 500 people, all women and children. And I couldn't serve everyone by any means. But what I could do was get out information. Um, and I wasn't even a lawyer, so it's not like I could give, give legal advice. But I spent a lot of time making handouts, doing group presentations, essentially being like a ad hoc teacher. And through that experience, I learned very early on that one of the major impediments to legal access to justice, and you can extrapolate this when you're thinking about health or finances or anything, is simply information. And if you equip people with the information that they need, often they can find the answers themselves. You know, yes, you need attorneys to be able to fight in court, and you need CPAs to be able to, you know, run the budget and finances of a large organization. But with digital skills, like with the ability to go online, with literacy, and with the ability to sort through reliable information, you can find out a lot. You know, there are free legal resources all over the internet that are good and reliable and maintained by, you know, really good institutions. And the same thing is, right, if you know how to use TurboTax, you can file your own taxes. You don't have to pay somebody some exorbitant fee. Um, and so that, that lesson um, really inspired me to get involved with Libraries Help Borders. And in 2017, at LWB, uh, I launched what's called the Legal Literacy Initiative, which really focuses on exactly this issue. Not legal advice. I'm not a lawyer, and I don't actually work with many lawyers, but legal information. And one thing we realized is that one of the number one barriers to accessing legal information is literacy and digital literacy. The fact that a lot of folks do not know how to use a computer, and in some cases do not have the reading level necessary to access legal information. And so that's really what we started with. This idea of legal literacy builds on other, you know, literacies, that is basic literacy, ABC, or health literacy, you know, knowing how to read the label on your prescription. And we realized that on the legal side, there's a similar basic core knowledge that you need to be able to navigate the justice system in the US. That's interesting because it seems like your work at the detention center and that awareness around this issue of access to information uh, really created this direct line to the work that you're doing now at Libraries Without Borders. And we were, we were talking right before we started recording and saying that Libraries Without Borders has this really expansive, um, diverse mission with all these different campaigns and tools that you offer that you work both in the United States and in 15 countries around the globe in 23 languages and that this diversity and everything that you're offering is, is part of the organization's strength. If we can just step back for a moment before we get into some of those programs that you just mentioned, can you just sum up what the mission of Libraries Without Borders is? Absolutely. So Libraries Without Borders is an international organization with a mission to promote access to information for those in need. And we recognize that that looks really different depending on where you are and who you are. And 
myself, I'm the executive director of the US Office of Libraries Without Borders, which is a separate 501c3 that primarily focuses on promoting access to information for uh, people living in the United States. Um, that said, I'm also part of the association that works internationally. Um, and internationally, if you put all the different offices and programs together, um, we operate in more than 30 different countries and we have all different kinds of programs. I think one of the best examples of the work of Libraries Without Borders um, is the Ideas Box, which is this pop-up library. It's a set of boxes um, and in about 20 to 30 minutes, you can create a library out of nothing. Uh, one box contains computers, the other one has books, another one has games, another one is a cinema. And you can set this up, and we have set this up in refugee camps in Colombia, Syria, Jordan, Bangladesh, and the Congo, in homeless shelters, uh, in Paris, and in recent years, um, in abandoned community centers in Puerto Rico, in the South Bronx, um, so the, I think the Ideas Box is a phenomenal example of the ways that we can promote access to information. And then we also tailor that to the context of the place we're working in. And so in the US, we took the Ideas Box, and as I mentioned, we've used it in Puerto Rico and in the South Bronx, but we also asked ourselves, how else can we promote access to information and bring libraries and library services to communities who need them? And we realized that laundromats um, were uniquely American and really fascinating way to get resources to people where they are when they're available. Yeah, so tell me more about that. Uh, what are you doing with the Wash and Learn Initiative? Um, so the Wash and Learn Initiative began as a byproduct of the Ideas Box. So in 2015, the New York Public Library had heard about some of the work that Libraries Without Borders was doing internationally, bringing the Ideas Box into refugee camps. And they invited us to demo the Ideas Box in the South Bronx. At first, we were really excited um, and we set up the Ideas Box in a public park, but we realized pretty early on that it wasn't actually a perfect fit for some simple reasons. <laughs> um, it was really hot and really rainy. And we wanted to design a program that didn't feel like it was competing at all with the work that the New York Public Library was doing, but instead was just building on their current capacity. And so together with the New York Public Library and actually an ethnologist at NYU, we started to test and iterate how to bring library resources into communities. And we had a big open question. So we started putting the ideas box um, at subway stations, we put it in the waiting room of a hospital, and one day we put the ideas box right outside of a laundromat, and we saw high levels of engagement. People who were interested in participating in the literacy program, using a computer, talking to a librarian, and people who were sticking around, you know, for 20, 30, even an hour sometimes. And that got us thinking, could we repurpose the ideas box and the, the tenets of a library but for a laundromat. So we actually um, launched another program focused entirely on laundromats in the city of Detroit. Um, and using that example, we scaled into Baltimore, Maryland, into Oakland, California, Minneapolis, St. Paul, 
the Pittsburgh metro area and San Antonio, Texas. And the program has continued to evolve. Um, there's a, a lot of really important ideas behind it, but most importantly, it's just the idea of meeting people where they are. The average family spends more than an hour in a laundromat a week. People are waiting, they're stuck. So it's a really interesting way to bring resources to folks. I think it also might go without saying that laundromats um, are primarily used by low-income families who either can't afford a washer dryer or don't have the space for a washer dryer. And so often we're working with families who may not have the time to go to the public library because they're working two or three jobs, may not have the money to take public transportation, um, or sometimes just aren't familiar with the resources that are available in a public library. When you bring these, the, the, the library in a sense to these laundromats, what sort of resources can, are available? Are there books? Is it their access to a computer? Can people connect with a librarian? So the real answer um, is it depends. One of the really important principles to the work of libraries without borders is what we call human-centered design. And that's the idea that we should be designing spaces based on people based on users, based on families, and what they need. And so before we you know, jump into a community and set up a bookshelf or put in a computer or offer an English language learning class, we ask residents, what do you wanna see in, your, in this space? Um, what would be most helpful to you? And the answer, honestly, depends. Some laundromats are frequented primarily by older adults. And so we, we wanna tailor our programs to them. Some laundromats are filled with kids. And we use that feedback to shape the space. Every space is a little bit different because every community is different. But I'll give you a couple examples. In the city of Baltimore, we offer free low-income tax preparation in the laundromats. We, in the city of um, Oakland, California, we offer English language learning. Uh, in Minneapolis, St. Paul, we offer story time programming through the public library. And so everything's a little bit different. Um, every space typically will have book donations or book circulation, as well as technology that's public access, so computers and internet. But again, you know, what kind of computers people want might depend on who they are. Maybe they're more comfortable with Apple products or Android. I won't bore you with the details, but you know, those little questions are really important because for us, and similar to a public library, it's not just about the books or the computers, it's about creating a space where people feel comfortable. And part of that is spatial, making sure that the colors look right. And part of that is also relational, making sure that we are building relationships in a way that is sustained and that's really local. I love that. I love that you ask the residents first what they're looking for. I think sometimes when uh, people are coming in to do good and like as if they're going to give back to someone. They don't often listen to the people that they're actually trying to connect with and support. Um, so I think it's so important that you're <laughs> focusing on the people because that's what it's about. And I'll just, if I can jump in for a second, you know, it's not rocket science, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm talking about this as this like fancy term, human-centered design. Yeah. Asking people what they want. Duh. Like, of course, that's who, who knows better than the people that you're trying to serve. Yeah, and you know, you're, when you say it like that, it is almost comical, but it's, it's, you know, I think especially a lot of 
white and privileged people um, will sort of go into a space and think like we're, we know the best answer and um, we don't always, <laughs> you know, every, everyone needs something a little bit different. Um, but I do appreciate the way you, you put that. Uh, so I actually want to move on to something else you had mentioned at the beginning, and you had talked about um, launching the Legal Literacy Initiative. And the moment that I, I read that you did that, I was like, oh, I have to ask you about this um, because of my interest in the criminal legal system. So tell me more about what that program or that initiative is. So it's actually um, really blended into a lot of our work. Um, and in a typical US Libraries of Orders program, there's a couple of key elements, one of which is libraries. Um, so having books, computers, and facilitated programs. And another key component of our work is thinking really creatively about meeting people where they are and providing information. When we started the Legal Literacy Initiative, it began as an effort um, to increase access to legal information. So. We curated a set of Know Your Rights videos, and we brought information from local law libraries, and we worked with local students and um, volunteers to get that information into laundromats and into parking lots, into churches primarily. Now, as we think about our programming, one thing that's emerged more and more is that we, you know, even legal information does not exist in a silo. So, you know, I mentioned that we do health information. Or I mentioned uh, the free tax prep that we do in Baltimore, the English language learning in Oakland. Um, we've learned over time that legal information is kind of part of that, uh, that ecosystem of, of knowledge. Um, and, and I think probably a lot of listeners can relate to this on a personal experience you don't typically walk into a space with a particular question. Sometimes you walk in with an idea of something that you're looking for, and then five minutes later, you realize that actually you were looking for something else. So it's not infrequent nowadays that somebody will walk into a laundromat that we're working in, and maybe, they, maybe their child is participating in a story time program, and they're talking with um, a volunteer that's doing low-income tax prep. As they're talking to that volunteer, they realize that actually they have a legal issue um, and that their boss has been, you know, that hasn't been paying them their full wages um, for the past year. And that comes up in, in conversations about taxes, but, you know, they realize more and more this is a serious problem. So in that sense, you have an early literacy program where their child's participating in a story time you have a financial literacy program with tax prep, and you have what is really, I would call a legal literacy program, working with that individual to ensure that they're familiar and are really understand that they have a legal issue and have rights and the ability to meet with an attorney to solve that problem. So while you know initially legal literacy was this kind of siloed program, today we actually think about training and think about curriculum for our programs in a really holistic sense. So legal literacy, health literacy, financial literacy, they all need to be coupled together because in short, life is complicated. <laughs> and no one, you know, you don't just have a health problem. You have a health problem 
and there's an election and there's a wildfire and maybe I'm getting a little too close to home these days, but <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things going on at the same time. And I think effective programs and effective libraries have to serve all of them together. I'm, I'm so glad you said that because I was just about to say, it seems like once again, you're creating initiatives that mirror the complexity of life. <laughs> and then you said that life is complicated. Um, I'm curious, what is the connection between justice and access to legal information. So, you know, we talk about lady justice in this country and, and like she's blind um, so that the justice system supposedly is blind to race or economic status or all these other things. And I, I don't think that's true at all. How is, how does access to legal information affect whether justice is served or not? I mean, I, I think it's best. The best way to answer the question is through an example. Um, let's imagine you have been, your landlord has sent you an eviction notice um, and you feel like um, for a number of reasons, you know, you did not get proper notice. The landlord did not follow the correct protocols and give you the, <clears throat> the appropriate notice that you needed to, um, to respond and, and really to stay in your home. Let's say you're going to housing court, but right now there's a pandemic and housing court is virtual, but you don't know how to operate Zoom. And I should point out, nationally, we don't have the real numbers, but at least in a workforce angle, we know that one third of low wage workers lack the digital skills um, to send an email. Not to mention going on Zoom and putting on their camera and writing in the chat. I mean, that's that is way, way above. So imagine you're going to housing court, you're trying to stay in your home, and you have to do this all online and you have no idea. Odds are you don't show up. Um, and absenteeism and you know um, is a huge issue, but you don't show up, you lose your case. <laughs> um, and the judge will rule in favor of your landlord. And so in that case, your digital literacy skills have already determined the outcome. You didn't have access to justice. You didn't maybe, you know, in civil cases in the first place, you don't have a right to attorney in most states. But even if you did have, an, a right to, have a right to an attorney in your housing court case, if you don't know how to use a computer during a pandemic, you're not going to court and you're gonna lose. And so in that case, your digital literacy um, is a determinant of your access to justice. And I think it's important, you've mentioned privilege, that we recognize the racial component of literacy. Um, illiteracy and lack of digital literacy are um, extremely racialized in this country. And I can, I don't know the national figures off the top of my head, but I do know that Hispanic families in particular um, have some of the highest rates of uh, low or non-existent digital literacy, followed by African-American families. That, that leads me to the next thing that I'd wanted to talk to you about. Uh, so this pandemic that you just mentioned, it's put a spotlight on the digital divide because more people need computers and access to the internet in order to access their virtual schooling or employment or apply for benefits in, in the sense that, so access to the internet is no longer just a luxury, it's something that's needed. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about this? I could talk about this for years. <laughs> you know, I think it's important to note, going way back to libraries, that 
public libraries in particular have been working on the digital divide since the 90s. Um, that you walk into almost any public library in the United States and you will see, sometimes before you see the books, a computer lab. And many Americans rely on their public library for internet. Um, I would really encourage listeners to like, now that I say it, you'll probably notice it. Walk by your public library, drive by your public library. You will notice a couple people hanging out. Sometimes they're folks who are experiencing homelessness who are waiting in the parking lot of that public library to access internet. That has been the case for decades. Libraries have been aware about the, have been aware of this. That's why they offer computers. That's why they offer free internet. That's why they offer digital literacy classes. During the pandemic, suddenly this was a headline because people realized that children were parking, you know, where parents were parking their cars in the parking lot of a library so that their kids could do their homework. Now, I don't want to sound bitter, but that's always been a problem. In February of this year, um, Senator Van Holland of Maryland introduced the homework gap bill, which is really the culmination of decades of research and advocacy by practitioners like me, but also a number of organizations across the country um, that have been really raising awareness about the fact that a kid who doesn't have a computer or who doesn't have internet at home cannot do their homework. Imagine writing an essay on your phone. You can't do it. <laughs> Imagine writing a resume on your phone. You can't do it. Um, those issues existed long before COVID-19. And the fact that everything has gone online has just, as you said, put a spotlight on this issue. Now it's not just homework that um, you know you can't do without a computer. It's daily schooling. You can't attend school if you don't have a computer. You can't attend school if you don't have internet. And so it's important, and, and you know, in some ways, grateful that we are finally focusing on this issue. Um, and it's part and parcel of what a public library does. And then in that respect, it's part and parcel of what Libraries Up Borders does in focusing on how we can expand access to internet and expand access to computers, particularly for those in need. I apologize if I'm sort of making you repeat yourself with this next thing, no. but I just, I just want to highlight sort of what you're talking about that this, the pandemic has highlighted something that's been going on for a long time. Um, and I feel like this digital divide is separating us along racial lines that have existed since essentially the beginning of our, mm -hmm. our country. It, it, do you want to speak to that? Yeah, I mean, there's a term that people are using um, that I love, just called digital redlining. Mm. Uh, I like the term because it builds on the concept of redlining and you know, the process, particularly in the 60s and 70s, wherein um, loan providers, you know, discriminated and excluded Black and Latinx and Indigenous families from uh, mortgages and loans um, and really created enclaves of poverty. And if you look at internet access in any American city, I kid you not, and you map which houses have internet, it is the same map that falls along racial lines. It's the same map that falls along school performance indicators, along health disparities, and along often, you know, 
histories and, and decades of uh, discrimination like redlining. And unfortunately, there is no panacea. There's no cure-all. Um, equipping, I mean, the nice thing about the digital divide is that there are some structural solutions we can put in place. We can work with internet service providers like your Comcast or your Verizons um, to increase internet coverage, um, especially in urban areas. We can make internet more affordable so that it's actually accessible. In rural areas, we need to do much more work actually laying uh, broadband infrastructure. But there are also some really structural issues that we can't just, uh, that, that I think are gonna require a pretty long-term investment. Mm -hmm. One of those is around digital literacy. You can't just teach somebody how to use a computer if they don't know how to read. And um, illiteracy remains an epidemic in this country. Uh, more than 30 million Americans, more than 10% of this country um, does not know how to read. And I think often when I cite that, cite that fact, people assume I'm talking about new immigrants. Um, the vast majority of that, of that 30 million Americans are native born. Um, so, <laughs> you know, we have an illiteracy epidemic and I'm just talking about, you know, illiteracy, the inability to read. I'm not talking about folks who have a second grade reading level or a fifth grade reading level. And when you include that, the numbers are staggeringly high. Um, in, in many cities where we work, I'll cite one, uh, the city of Detroit, uh, more than 40% of adults are functionally illiterate, which I believe is defined as uh, lacking a uh, reading level above the second grade. So reading a newspaper article is essentially inaccessible to you. Now, I'm saying that not to you know, be gloom and doom, but to emphasize that you're not going to be setting up an email address if you lack basic literacy skills and you're not going to be able to address you know the health issues that you're facing or to be able to help your kid with their homework if you don't have literacy skills and if you don't have digital literacy skills and if the internet service company doesn't provide internet in your neighborhood or you can't afford it again you know these are issues that are often layered on top of one another, which is not to say that they are intractable. In fact, if you look, you know, there are phenomenal examples of holistic, smart ways to solve these problems, but they, I, mean, I can't point to a single solution that is going to address this because it, it draws on histories, uh, really, of discrimination. Yeah, when you, give those numbers about illiteracy, uh, they are staggering, which is the word that you use, and just uh, almost overwhelming and, and sort of helps you understand how we have these cycles of uh, perpetuating uh, incarceration and, and other, uh, yeah, so that's, wow. <laughs> um, I think you have a project that's interesting that's somewhat connected to this, if I'm correct. If I'm wrong, you could completely clear this up. So what are you doing with the Alfred Landecker Democracy Fellowship Project that you've got going on? Oh, you've definitely done your research. <laughs> um, <laughs> I did a little light stalking. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 you're great. Um, so this is, it is technically a separate project. Um, so this is uh, more me than Library Suborders, mm -hmm. so of course they're related. Um, but yeah, I'm an Alfred Landecker Democracy Fellow, and uh, it's this inaugural fellowship that's 
um, run by the Alpha Landaker Foundation and the Humanity in Action Program uh, that has selected 30 leaders um, from uh, primarily the US and Europe who are looking at innovative solutions to problems that are really tied to this moment, particularly the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, now, I was just awarded this fellowship. I'm ex incredibly excited about it. Um, I actually just uh, got word about it maybe a month ago. Oh. So I'm learning as I go. Um, but my project with the Alfred Landecker Democracy Fellowship focuses on the digital divide and the work that I've been doing at Libraries Help Borders. Um, and it's a bit of a pet project of mine. One issue that I've seen again and again and again around the digital divide is the lack of effective storytelling. And by that, I mean the fact that, you know, a lot of the articles, a lot of the stories that we're hearing about the digital divide come from a very top-down perspective. It's usually about, you know, a school system or a city, um, and usually the lead of the article, you know, the first two or three sentences is about a kid that's doing their homework in the parking lot. And then we move on to talk about, you know, citywide, there's, you know, X thousand or X million people who are in this situation. And as the country grapples with the digital divide, I think it's really important that we are able to look at this issue, not just from this, you know, perspective of Congress or City Hall, but from the perspective of an individual. What is it really like to live in 2020, to be trying to fill out your census online or to have a telehealth appointment with your doctor or to go to school or attend college when you don't have sufficient internet or you don't have a functioning computer, you don't really know how to work a computer. What is, what's that lived experience like? How do you navigate that? Um, now, sometimes people laugh, you know, especially folks who are over the age of 40 or so and they say well you know i i spent most of my life without a computer and that's true <laughs> totally true but you if you are wealthy uh and increasingly if you're white in this country in 2020 you have a computer and you have internet and you have basic digital literacy skills and the experience of being without those things in this moment not in 1960 not 1970 but in 2020 is a unique barrier that I think a lot of folks have kind of overlooked. And I think part of the reason why it's overlooked is because it's out of sight, out of mind. It's really hard to fathom living without a computer right now when it's all we know. I think the best example is around, if you look at the media industry, we see an exploding number of online news outlets. And I really commend those news outlets. I think there's a lot of nonprofit models that are incredible. But when you're talking about accessibility of journalism and accessibility of media, how in the world can you get online stories to a population that doesn't have internet, that doesn't have reliable access to, to a computer? Um, and that, that is a problem that I think, it, it's just, it, it really, it highlights the divide that we see in this country and the kinds of inequality. And I think is there's, there's many parallels to literacy. It's really hard to fathom what it's like to be unable to read an article 
or to be unable to read and understand um, the prescription or the things that your doctor tells you or a lawyer, et cetera, when you have those skills. And my work with the Alfred Lander, Alfred Lander Democracy Fellowship is to work with individuals through my network of libraries of borders and folks who are most affected by the digital divide and help them tell their stories. As a storyteller myself, I think that's why I was drawn to your project, that you're really trying to bring the, their stories to the foreground and encourage this deep listening um, by people to people who are most affected, because I think that's one of the things that creates change. There are all sorts of roles that we can play in creating change, but one of them is telling stories. Um, so I appreciate that you're doing that, and I'm definitely going to follow along on that. Um, I've got two more questions for you. I always say last question, and then I, I add more, so I'm going to say two just in case. Um, <laughs> the first one is, uh, how has this work, all, all that you've done and experienced and seen, how has it changed you? Oof. Yeah, I know, big question, right? <laughs> How has it changed me? Um, I think I, I feel like I'm changed every month, every week. And you know, the way that this year has been going, it feels like every week. Um, I, I don't know if I have a simple answer to your question, unfortunately. Um, I think on a personal level, I have been thinking a lot about my own privilege um, and the enormous responsibility that I have to lead such a great organization, um, but also the pressure that comes with that. And the fact that, you know, at the end of the day, I my job is to speak for folks who don't have the platforms to speak. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot about my own position. How can I use my voice to up uplift others without squashing their voices, without taking up more space? Because I don't think this country needs more you know, white men like me telling people about the problems that they are already facing. <laughs> Um, so I, I'm trying to be really thoughtful about my own, my own position and the space that I take up. Mm. All right, we're going to go from that big heavy question to one last question that hopefully is a bit lighter. So, I mean, I know you have so much going on, so I don't know if you have much time to read these days, but if you do, what are you currently reading? Or, or if not, like, what are, do you have a favorite author or book? I am reading a lot um, <laughs> because I'm spending a lot of time going on walks. So I've been doing a lot of audiobooks, which is my important moment to plug that audiobooks are just as valuable from an education standpoint. They're just as good for you. They're just as enriching and intellectual as regular books. There's no difference. <laughs> That's my quick plug. Um, so a lot of audiobooks. Um, right now I'm listening to a really sad one uh, about death and grief called The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion. Um, which is phenomenal, though really depressing. Um, and on a fun side, well, I don't know how fun. I'm reading uh, Gia Tolentino's book, Trick Mirror, which is all about internet and how a lot of internet trends promote uh, self-delusion. It's a little intellectual. Mm. Um, that could also be yeah. fun. Nerdy can be fun. 
Yeah, I, I'm, I'm like, generally, I think a lot of the books that I read are like, um, well, I, you know, I, part of me just really wants to read like trashy romance novels, like, <laughs> that I enjoy in the world, um, especially books with like an LGBTQ pr- protagonist. Mm. I, that's like, that's, that's my heart. Um, but I struggle with that because I, you know, I see these books on the bookshelf and I'm like, oh, I want to read that. But then I have like the pretentious part of me that ends up just reading really <laughs> fancy books. And that seems to be where I am. Um, so I have a lot of, you know, great classics on my bookshelf uh, that I'm trying to get through. But I would say right now, I'm, I'm really enjoying this book by Joan Didion and uh, mm. the series of essays by Gia Tolentino. But that's a great question because I love talking about the books I'm reading. Well, I mean, I feel like there's a season for everything. So maybe you, at another point, you'll go back to some of those trashy, but important, you know, like you said, having... Uh, protagonists who are uh, LGBTQ or, or something different. We don't often hear that or focus on that. So I think that's important. Mm-hmm. Um, so not just trashy. Uh, but with that, Adam, I am... No, they're not trashy at all. Yeah. What were you going to say? <laughs> no, I was going to say with that, I'm just so grateful for your time today. Like I said, I, you know, I love libraries and I, I think your mission is so important. So I was really excited to talk to you. I am definitely going to keep following along. But uh, thank you for everything you do and for joining me. Please check out the work Adam and everyone at Libraries Without Borders is doing not only in the United States, but across the globe by visiting libraryswithoutborders.org. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to joining you next time on I'm Curious Podcast.